Take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel chapter 1. So we start a brand new sermon series on this tremendous book. Time magazine published an interesting piece last year titled, Christians are no longer welcome in the West. That was the title of it. Christians are no longer welcome in the West. And, uh, and in it, the author describes a vigorous secularism that has, quote, catapulted mockery of Christianity into the mainstream. The article goes on to chronicle examples of Christians losing their jobs because of their beliefs, Christians enduring insults and smears, and a general cultural hostility to believers. Well, maybe at one time, Christianity and Christian ideals were in the majority in America, at least outwardly, it appeared that way. Since then, a massive cultural seismic shift has occurred in our land and has come to the point where some of us look around and we don't even recognize this country. We feel like aliens and strangers in this world, and there is an increased pressure to assimilate, uh, to conform our beliefs and behavior to an increasingly anti-Christian culture. Sure, you can be Christian, the culture says, as long as you agree with us on our definition of marriage or our definition on um, who, who can be saved and who cannot be saved, or our, our embrace of uh, pluralism where all beliefs and worldviews are valid, except for one, of course. Now, that tension that we feel, that tension that we live in is not uniquely American, and it's not new. It's an old conflict between two kingdoms. There is, on the one hand, the kingdom of God, which puts the plans and purposes and the glory of God at the center. And on the other hand, you have the kingdom of man or the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of darkness. Those are all synonyms there, which puts man at the center and is all about self-glory, self-determination, self-rule, and self-exaltation. And so... If you're a member of the kingdom of God and you're living your life in a land that is under the influence of the kingdom of man, of course you're going to feel tension. Of course you're going to feel conflict. Of course you're going to feel like that that you don't totally belong. When the apostle Peter writes his first epistle to Christians, he says he is writing to elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, an exile is somebody who's living in a land that is not their home, amongst a people who is not their people. And the challenge for believers is how do we live while we are in exile, in a land where more and more you feel like an outcast in a world that is hostile towards what you believe. When the Apostle Peter calls us exiles of the dispersion, He's identifying us with the Old Testament people of God who also had to wrestle with being strangers and aliens in a foreign land. In the 7th and 6th centuries B.C., a seismic shift was happening in the global cultural landscape as the Babylonian Empire rose to power and in 605 B.C. invaded the land of Judah, besieged the city of Jerusalem, and many Hebrew people in a a series of stages over the next several years, some of these people faithful to the God of Israel now found themselves forcibly deported to Babylon and surrounded by paganism 
and false gods and, and a completely different way of life and a pressure to conform, feeling like aliens and strangers in a land that is not their home. Now, Psalm 137, which is what we opened the service with, recalls the emotional torment of these exiles as they were asked by their captors to sing the songs of Zion. And and they respond by saying, how? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And the book of Daniel is written for God's exiles and dispersed people in all times and in all places who are coming to grips with the reality that this world is not their home. So, with that said, why don't you stand with me now as we read God's Word for His exiles together. Daniel chapter 1, we'll we'll read the whole chapter. Daniel writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans." The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in a worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and All literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. 
And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. Father, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, This is not merely history. Uh, This is revelation. So, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to us this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You can imagine a million questions going through the minds of the Jewish captives in Babylon. Why are we here? Has God abandoned us? I don't want to be in Babylon. I want to be home. But here I am. I'm surrounded by pagan gods and pagan temples and a pagan lifestyle. The forces of darkness seem to be winning. The tyrants are on top and God's people are on the bottom. So now what? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And here in chapter 1, Daniel offers three specific messages of encouragement and hope for exiles to help us answer that question. Daniel's encouragement to God's people living in exile is to remember who is in charge. To remember who is in charge. Who's in charge? Well, that's obvious, isn't it? Babylon is in charge. This is the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. Babylon has the greatest might, the greatest wealth, and the greatest influence in all the world. They overthrew the Assyrian Empire. They just scored a major victory over Egypt. They're expanding into other realms, and Judah becomes just the latest in a series of conquests. And so, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jerusalem was the holy city. Jerusalem, the heart of the land that God gave to his people, conquered and taken over by a megalomaniacal tyrant. But it gets worse. Nebuchadnezzar not only plundered Jerusalem, but even the temple... If you look at verse 2, it says he took some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar. Notice that mention of Shinar. Where in the Bible are we first introduced to Shinar? Does that sound familiar? Genesis chapter 11. There we first met Babylon. There we found the story of the Tower of Babel, the first great symbol of man's organized defiance of God, where the kingdom of man clashed against the kingdom of God. And Daniel's mention of Shinar draws the reader's mind back to Babel and connects Nebuchadnezzar with that ancient revolt against God. And here, it seems like he's winning the battle. Nebuchadnezzar takes the vessels from the temple. He brings them to, uh, to the land of Shinar. It says in verse 2, he brings them to the house of his God and place the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, this would have been the worst blow of all to the Hebrews. The temple that God gave to his people has been overthrown, overrun, desecrated. The temple wherein the Spirit of God dwelled and his presence was manifested. The the temple was the visible sign that God was dwelling with his people. Now that temple's been desecrated. In the ancient world, it was believed that when armies and nations fought one another, there was also at the same time a battle between the gods. 
And if my army whooped up on your army, that meant that my God whooped up on your God. That's how it would have been seen back then. And as the armies of Nebuchadnezzar march into that temple in Jerusalem, seizing whatever they want, people would have seen this as a victory of the Babylonian gods. They would have seen this as a sign that Bel and Marduk and Nabu of Babylon had defeated Yahweh, the God of Israel. Surely it was regarded by the survivors as Israel's darkest day. All seemed over. All seemed lost. Babylon was on top. Babylon was in charge. Or was it? You could regard verse 1 as the newspaper reports or the front page on foxnews.com where the headline says, In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's what's happening. That's what's going on. But verse 2 gives insight that the Babylonians didn't have and that Fox News wouldn't have had if they were there back then reporting on everything in their fair and balanced way. But I hope you caught it. According to verse 2, how was Jehoiakim given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? It tells you right there in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So tell me again. Who's in charge? Who's running things? You see, verse 1 tells you what's going on, but verse 2 tells you what's going on behind what's going on. And what we see on the surface as the events of history unfolds, what we see is never the whole story. Daniel immediately begins his book by reminding exiles that God is in charge. That God has total sovereignty, total control over everything. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing is random. Nothing happens merely through the will of man. Daniel's mention of God's hand in this would have reminded the exiles that God has a purpose in all things that happen. And God's purpose in all of this was judgment. In uh, Leviticus chapter 26, God told the people of Israel that if they served the Lord and kept covenant with Him, that God would bless them. But if they turn away from God and remain in persistent disobedience, that, that God says in Leviticus 26, I myself will discipline you for your sins. And He goes on to say, I will lay your cities waste, I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will scatter you among the nations. Prophet Isaiah warned Jehoiakim's great great-grandfather, King Hezekiah, in 2 Kings chapter 20, that this would happen, that the people would be scattered and that they would be taken away. So how does Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 help us to interpret Daniel chapter 1 verse 1? What we see now is that Nebuchadnezzar is not an almighty king. He is instead a mere tool and lackey to almighty God. Nebuchadnezzar isn't winning. Instead, God, our God is in the heavens, as the psalmist writes, and he does whatever he pleases. It's really important for the Jewish exiles to remember who's in charge. If Nebuchadnezzar is Lord, then none of God's promises to his people matter. If the overthrow of Jerusalem wasn't really God's doing, 
and the forces of evil are in charge, then what hope, what assurance, what confidence can God's people have regarding the future? How can you take any hope and comfort in God's promises that he will not only preserve and sustain his exiles, but that he will ultimately bring about a final victory, a final vindication of the people of God, where God one day will usher in a new order, where justice will at long last reign globally, and evil will be fully and finally dealt with, forever banished from the world. How can you have hope that those things are going to happen if God is not sovereign? The answer is is that you can't. If God is not sovereign over everything, even over evil things, like the sacking of Jerusalem, if God is not sovereign over everything, you can have hope in nothing. If God is not sovereign over everything, then how can you have confidence in God's promise found in Romans 8.28 that God will work all things together for the good of his people? How can you have confidence in Philippians 4.19? That it says God will supply all of your needs. How can you embrace and obey Jesus' command in Matthew 6 and in Matthew 10 not to be anxious or fearful about anything? Jesus bases his whole argument for why you shouldn't worry on the doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things, even the little things. Jesus says, Don't worry. God even takes care of the plants and animals. Jesus says, don't be fearful. Not even one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your heavenly Father. Only the doctrine of God's sovereignty can give God's people any kind of hope during life's darkest moments. Too many times Christians are in despair or angry or anxious or depressed because they see what's going on, but they forget that something is going on behind what's going on. Christians look around, and it seems like evil is winning. Injustice abounds. Christians turn on the news, and they get bound up in fear and anxiety and dread. But friends, the book of Daniel reminds us that God isn't asleep at the switch. God knows what's going on, and not only does he know, but there's nothing that happens that can happen outside of the sphere of his sovereign plan. The forces of evil can do their worst, but they cannot thwart God's plan even better. All they can do is further God's plan. Now, if you're struggling with this, as many do, wondering how can God be sovereign over evil, be in control of all things, ordaining all things that come to pass, while bringing about something good that glorifies him and benefits his people, you're thinking, how, I can't handle that. How's that work? Help me out, Deemer. The best place that I can take you is to the cross. The best place that I can take you is Acts chapter 2, which says, Men of Israel, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, if God is working for his glory and your good in the most evil act ever committed, namely the murder of Jesus Christ, then surely he is doing it with lesser evils and lesser trials and lesser afflictions that are coming into your life every day. Some of you who are uncomfortable with the doctrine of God's sovereignty, you need to get over that and just joyfully embrace that. 
because it's good and glorious news, and it is the bedrock of Christian hope and happiness. Because in this doctrine, we learn that history ultimately is his story, and evil people aren't in charge of the story. God has no co-authors. So Christian exiles, remember who is in charge. And Christian exiles also remember this, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Nebuchadnezzar has a plan, and that plan is absolutely brilliant. The key to Nebuchadnezzar's plan of domination is not annihilation, but assimilation. Look at verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Nebuchadnezzar is on a hunt for the best and the brightest and wisest Jewish people he can find to put them in high positions in the Babylonian government. Daniel and his three friends would have been probably between 13 and 16 years old at this time, teenagers. And more than one teacher has noted a very deliberate fourfold strategy that Nebuchadnezzar has for turning these youths to the dark side, for, for shaping their minds and shaping their hearts. Sinclair Ferguson describes this strategy as isolation, indoctrination, compromise, and confusion. I like that. Those are good labels. We'll keep that. The first thing that happens is isolation. Isolation. Text says that these bright, promising youths are to be brought to the heart of Babylon. They're going to be isolated from their godly families, isolated from worship with the people of God, isolated from hearing the Word of God taught and read, isolated from the community of faith. Once Babylon has cut them off from any sort of godly influence, and the next step is indoctrination. Look at Look at the end of verse 4. Ashpenaz is to bring these teenagers, and it says, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Basically, these bright young youths are given a free ride, a full scholarship to the University of Babylon. They're enrolled in the MBA program, Master of Babylonian Administration. And this education would have been quite extensive, and have included history, astronomy, mathematics, medicine. In the language department, they would have learned Sumerian, Akkadian, Aramaic. There wasn't just a language department and a science department, though. There was also a theology department. And Daniel and his friends would have had to learn the Babylonian religion and the stories of the gods and all of their creation myths. These young men were awash in Babylonian literature and in Babylonian lore, and they were awash in the worldview behind it all because every educational system has a worldview behind it. Do you know that? So they are steeped in all of this because Nebuchadnezzar knows if I can get them to think like Babylonians, they will live like Babylonians. Next stage is is compromise. Verse 5, king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now, I'll try to explain why this is compromise in a moment, but for now, let me just say this isn't just compromise. It is comfortable compromise. I don't know what the meals were like when you were in college, 
But at U of B, University of Babylon, the students were to receive the king's food. And you can be assured that the king wasn't eating top ramen. I know that's a staple for many college students. At least it was back in the day for me. Nebuchadnezzar would have gotten the best. He would have gotten the finest food prepared by the most skillful chefs in the empire. The richest delicacies from the royal kitchen. And the wine? Absolute best wine in the empire. From the best grapes aged to perfection. This was as good as it gets. You see, these teenagers aren't being treated like slaves. And Nebuchadnezzar is so brilliant. They're being treated like kings. Like royalty. The best education. The best food. With the promise of the best opportunities of of career in government service. If you graduate from U of B, you are set for life. You see, Nebuchadnezzar knows you can attract flies better with honey than with vinegar. And he wants them to enjoy this life and enjoy this world. And see, these 13 and 14 and 15-year-old boys enjoying high living and comfort and position and status and importance. All kinds of Sensual pleasures and opportunities are open up to them. Now look at the final step in this plan of assimilation. It is confusion. Final step, confusion. Verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshar. Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael. He called Meshach. Azariah he called Abednego. Now in the Bible days, names were a lot more important than they are today. In the ancient world, names had everything to do with identity. And to change someone's name signified new ownership and a new future. Now the names of these young men had to do with the one true God. You can can hear it in their names. And so you have have Daniel. El means God, as in Elohim, Daniel. It means God is my judge. You have Hananiah, as in Yahweh, means God has been, Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. Azariah, Yah, there it is again, means God has helped. But now they're given new names connected with the gods of the Babylonians. Daniel becomes Belshazzar, which means Bel will protect. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael becomes Meshach, those names are connected with the god Aku. Azariah becomes Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. And the whole purpose of the name changing is to cause these young men to forget God and to forget who they are as God's people and to lose themselves in Babylon. It's a matter of identity. You used to belong to Yahweh, now you belong to Bel and Aku and Nebo. You belong to Babylon. So you've got this incredible, powerful, fourfold strategy. Isolation, indoctrination, compromise, and confusion. And so now the question is, what are these boys going to do? Now that's a question, by the way, for every teenager in this room. Teenager, are you a Christian? Guess what? You've been exiled. You are a stranger in a foreign land. This world is a kingdom. And and it's a kingdom that is anti-Christ. And the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the book of Ephesians calls the devil, wants to bend you into his mold. He wants you to assimilate. He wants to isolate you. Some of you teenagers may be going to church now because you have to. 
because your parents make you. As soon as you get out of the house, you're, you're going to be immediately tempted to isolate yourself from the body of Christ. Maybe somebody here is already making plans to do that, to disconnect from the people of God, from corporate worship, from the accountability and the encouragement that Christian community provides. And even now, by the way, even though you're here, you can isolate yourself from church. You can be here physically, but mentally check out. He wants to indoctrinate you. Every book that you read, every movie that you watch, every song that you listen to comes from a worldview that is selling you a message. Don't kid yourself. You are always being taught. You are always being instructed in something by someone. And the enemy wants to use that indoctrination to change your thinking. Because as a man thinks in his heart, the Bible says, so is he. He wants you to compromise. He wants you to wean yourself off of the pleasures of Christ and onto the destructive delicacies of sin. And he wants to bring about confusion. He wants you to forget who you are. If you're a Christian, the enemy wants you to root your identity in anything else outside of Christ. Because who you think you are will influence what you actually do. And this warning is not just for teenagers, but for all aliens and exiles in a foreign land. Friends, the culture is not neutral. The winds of culture in this world are blowing in a certain direction, and the direction is against Christ. And the question that every single person in this room needs to ask themselves is, am I the Lord's or do I belong to Babylon? There's only two ways to live. Now, likely, many of the young boys that were brought to Babylon found the temptations and pressures of Nebuchadnezzar's assimilation plan too powerful to resist. But the text shows us how these four young men stood out amongst many that would have quickly compromised. There's an interesting linguistical emphasis in verses 7 and 8 that's not obvious in the English. And I want to put this up on the, on the screen, uh, these verses here. In the original, if you were to translate it literally, it would say something like this. The chief of the eunuchs set names for them, so he set for Daniel Belteshar, and then in verse 8a, now Daniel set it upon his heart. See what the text is communicating? The head of the eunuchs, who's in charge of this assimilation program, has purpose to set names for them, to change their names, to change their identities. But verse 8 gives a stark contrast as if it's saying, yeah, that was the plan, but this is what Daniel will do. In other words, Daniel is resisting this idea that his identity is changing. They may change his name, but that does not change Daniel's ultimate loyalty and allegiance. What's interesting here is where Daniel draws the line. He's not making really a big fuss if they want to call him Belteshar. He's not throwing a fit over having to learn their literature and language. Instead, he draws the line when it comes to food. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, why? Scholars disagree on on what specifically is going on here. Regarding the wine, there may have been a concern on Daniel's part that an indulgence in wine would have weakened his resolve and dulled his spiritual senses and discernment in such 
uh, would result in spiritual defilement. But what about the food? Again, I think the key word here is defile. Daniel believed that if he partook of this food, he would become spiritually compromised. You see, the Jewish people had certain dietary laws, certain foods that would have been regarded as clean and some that would have been regarded as unclean. Not that in and of themselves one type of food is actually holier than another, but God had given the Jews these laws as a symbolic reminder of spiritual contamination, that that his people must separate themselves from and avoid all things that might pollute them with sin. And the food laws were also a symbol of spiritual identity. Their physical abstinence from certain food was a way of reminding Israel that spiritually they were to be distinct and separate from the world, from the pagan nations that did not know God. It was a reminder of who they were and who they belonged to. And it's at this point of food where Daniel draws the line because he does not want to violate God's word and spiritually defile himself. I think here we're given a great example of how God's exile is to live in a strange land. How are we to live today? Daniel, interesting, it's interesting watching Daniel here, he's able to walk that line of accommodation without compromise. Accommodation without compromise. You want to change my name? Fine. I'm not going to demand you call me Daniel. Word of God doesn't speak to that. Whatever. I know who I really am. You want me to go to the University of Babylon? Fine. Sign me up. I'll learn your false theology while sticking to what I believe. Daniel is not belligerently rebelling against the government. He's working for the government. He's actually content serving a godless king in a godless country. Daniel seems to take to heart God's exhortation in Jeremiah chapter 29, where God says to the exiles, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God's people are not to be hostile and belligerent or apathetic towards the land that they live in, but to serve it as good citizens for its good. But on the other hand, God's people can only go so far. And Daniel says, I'm not going to do something that would defile me. I'll do anything, but I'm not doing that if it defiles me, to cause me to violate God's word. I'm not going to do anything that is not in in accordance with my identity as a child of God. Despite all the temptations of Babylon, Daniel was determined to hold on to his identity and to remember who he really was. Again, going back to Psalm 137 where the exiles say to their captors, how can I sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And then right after that, it says, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem, in other words, and the God of Jerusalem, that's what it means, above my highest joy. There's a, there's a loyalty there. Uh, there. There's a determination to not forget who we really belong to. To live in Babylon that is in exile, means having the wisdom to know where to accommodate, to know what battles not to fight, and to know where we draw the line and dig in our heels, and we dig in our heels at any point where something might defile us, might cause us to sin, might lead us to violate God's word. When you are in a godless culture, as you are in, 
When there are many forces around you pressuring you to conform, you must deliberately examine your life and ask the question, what is it that would defile me? What compromises am I tempted to make in my own life that if I give in to them, I'll be assimilated into this godless culture and I won't look any different than the world? For Daniel, it was eating certain types of food. For some of you, it may be that I don't know, that TV show that you know you shouldn't watch because it stirs up sinful, anti-God desires inside of you, but you watch it anyway because it's a guilty pleasure. No one's going to know. It's not going to hurt anybody. For some of you, it may be uh, that there, there are things coming across that computer screen in the middle of the night that you should not be gazing at. For all of us, it is various sinful thoughts and attitudes of the heart that defile us. Pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, bitterness. And there are things that you, you, Harbin's Church, are going to encounter in Babylon that puts you at risk of defiling yourself and falling into those sins. These are things we are not to play with, flirt with, trifle with. These are things we are to deal with swiftly and aggressively, which is why Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. For Daniel, in chapter 1, the issue was food. What about you? What in your life must you cut off to avoid being defiled in Babylon? So God's exiles are to remember who's in charge. Daniel's second word to exiles is to remember who you are. But then finally, Daniel also wants us to remember that he is faithful. Remember he is faithful. As the exiles find their place in this strange new world, surely there were questions about God. One of Daniel's purposes in this book is to assure the exiles of God's faithfulness to his people. Indeed, we see it in various ways right here in chapter 1. In verse 9, the reason why Daniel can even broach the subject with Ashpenaz regarding this issue of food in the first place is not because of Daniel's charming personality, but why? Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. They request water and vegetables, and look what happens. Verse 15, At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, how does that happen? The implication is clear. Daniel and his friends are being sustained and growing stronger, not because of the supply and generosity of Nebuchadnezzar, but because of the faithfulness of God. That's the point. Go down to verse 17. How did they fare in the University of Babylon? It says, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill, and and all literature, and wisdom. The emphasis is not on the awesomeness of the four boys, but on God's faithfulness to them. You see, God is faithful to his exiles, both then and now. God's faithful to strengthen his exiles where they need to be strengthened. He is faithful to give them favor with, with whomever they need to have favor with. He's faithful to equip them to do whatever job he has called them to do. Even verse 2 where we're told that God gave Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar, is a sign of God's faithfulness. God was faithful to keep his promise of judgment and exile, but then that means that he can also be counted on to keep the other part of his promise found in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 44, which says, when they are in the land of their enemies, 
I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. God is always faithful to his people. We get a final hint of that faithfulness as the chapter closes. Look at verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I love that verse. King Cyrus. King Cyrus? Who's he? We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. All of a sudden now we're talking about King Cyrus. Cyrus is way after Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king long after Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Long after Nebuchadnezzar's son is dead. And after three additional rulers come to the throne before the next great world empire comes on the scene and conquers Babylon, which is the Medo-Persian Empire, led by King Cyrus. And when Cyrus is on the scene, lo and behold, Daniel's still there, ministering 70 years later. You see, kings come and kings go. Nebuchadnezzar, who at one time was the most feared and powerful man in the world, is now rotting in a tomb. He's becoming a historical footnote. And yet all the while, God's servant continues to serve as God faithfully sustains him, even to see the rise of Cyrus. And what's significant about that? Pop quiz, what happened in the first year of King Cyrus? Some of you know. That's the first year that the exiles are allowed to return home. For thus says the Lord, in Jeremiah chapter 29, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Now that future and that hope is not ultimately bound up in a return home. Because when they return home, they don't enjoy the independence that they once had. For the next several centuries, they're under the dominion of Gentile powers. And even in the boundaries of their own land, they're still like exiles. They're still in captivity. They're still oppressed by the pagans. You get to the New Testament now, and the, and the greatest force that the world has ever seen, the Roman Empire, is in charge. Way, way stronger than Babylon. And so by the time you get to the New Testament, the, the yearning of the people for deliverance is stronger than ever. And in the first century, during that time, there emerges another young prophet. Like Daniel, he's from the tribe of Judah. Like Daniel, he has noble blood. And like Daniel, he too has a word of hope and encouragement for God's exiles. And he says to them, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, in this world you'll have trouble, exiles, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And though he was a king, he said that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The hope of Israel and of the nations is ultimately bound up in a person. Because our biggest problem is not political or geographical exile. It's spiritual exile. In the beginning, man lived in God's special place. 
a place with no pain or sorrow or sickness or death, and they had perfect communion and perfect fellowship with God and one another. But because of our sin, we've been exiled from God's place, which means exiled from God, and the destiny of all who remain in their sin is permanent exile from the enjoyment of God's presence in hell. But Jesus Christ came to remedy the problem of exile. On the cross, he became a substitute for sinners like us, and in our place, he suffered ultimate exile from God as he endured God's hellish wrath for us. He came to save exiles by becoming an exile. And all who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation will enjoy full pardon from the sin that sent us into exile in the first place. And just as our sin was taken up by Jesus, Jesus' perfect righteousness is permanently applied to us so that we never need fear being cast out of God's presence again. And so now, we as believers, though still in this world, are no longer of the world. While we still live as exiles, we know that one day, because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we will be brought home. And that's why Jesus says to fearful and depressed and anxious exiles today, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We'll see next week in Daniel chapter 2 that God promises the establishment of a kingdom on earth that will endure forever. The book of Revelation tells us that in this kingdom there will be no more sin and sorrow, no more sickness or death, and perfect fellowship with God once again. And so what do we do in the meantime? We wait. And we remember that God is in charge. Everything that's happening around us is happening only through the sovereign hand of a good God who always works on behalf of His people. History is His story. We remember who we are. We are God's people. We're going to be different from the world because we are different from the world. And we remember that God is faithful. The cross is God's ultimate sign of faithfulness to His people and the pledge that He will sustain us and preserve us through our exile. And He will one day finally bring us home. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be better exiles. I pray that you would help us to not sink into despair as we look at the world around us and it appears outwardly that things are spinning out of control. Help us to remember that you're in charge, that you have the whole world in your hands. Father, help us to remember who we are. Those of us who have been purchased and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now your people. We are now your sons and daughters. You are now our Father. And so I pray that you would help us to live in a way that looks like you, that testifies to the world that you are our Father. That's going to mean looking very different from the world. Father, help us to have the courage to step out as we remember who we are, as we live for you. And Father, help us to remember your faithfulness. 
when trials come, when great difficulty comes, it can be easy to start asking questions. Where is God? Has God forgotten me? What's going on? Father, during those times, help us to remember the cross. There is no greater sign. There is no greater pledge. There is no greater token of your faithfulness than that. Because if you did not spare your only son, how will you not also give us all things? Because you have offered up the most valuable thing in the universe, which is your son, we can rest assured that all other things that are good will come to us. So, Father, help us now to be faithful exiles and help us to depend on your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.